Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined once again by Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Lynn, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back. It's been a crazy week. It really has. We're recording the afternoon of Wednesday, March 15th, uh, five days after the fall of Silicon Valley, Valley Bank. And then we had the Signature Bank fall on, on Sunday being taken over by the FDIC, some emergency packages being rolled out by the FDIC, Fed, Treasury. I want to get into all of it, Lynn. But first, let's start off. When you have these uh, bank uh, problems, what is the cause of it and how concerned should people be about them? So each each banking crisis is different, and a lot of people I think fight the last war. So so a lot of people when they hear banking crisis, they immediately think of uh, two thousand eight, whereas that was that was largely a credit event. Uh, basically, banks made a lot of bad loans that were defaulting. Uh, in this context, it's not that bad loans are defaulting; it's that uh, actually very very safe securities were bought at high prices, low yields. And as we've, we've entered a higher inflation, higher interest rate regime, many of them have unrealized losses, which for the most part for like a big bank is fine because if you hold to maturity, you're, you're, you're going to get your money back. But if, they, if their deposit base is skittish because say they have a high uh, percentage of not insured large you know, business accounts, they can pull funding quickly and make a bank sell those um, you know, those securities is at a, at a loss. And it for Silicon Valley Bank's case, their losses, you know, were, were exceeding their capital because they managed risk poorly. But uh, across the broader space, generally when, when they increased rates this quickly, um, it put a lot of pressure on the existing asset bases of, of pretty much all banks, but especially skewing towards the small and the, and the medium-sized banks um, because, you know, when, they, when you have a liquidity problem in the banking system, it's not, it's not like, you know, liquidity can really leave the whole banking system quickly, but it can leave in any individual individual bank quickly. And so it can, it can skew towards the, the, the larger banks and leave some of those small and medium-sized ones dry. So there's three things for banks. There's solvency, liquidity, and then prof- profitability. Solvency is, do banks have more in assets than they have in liabilities? If they don't, that's a problem. Liability is the ease with which people can get money in and out of a bank. Banks can convert assets in, into other sorts of assets. And the profitability is, are, is the bank making money? Is it earning enough on its assets to pay people in, in deposits and keep the deposits in there? Of those three different metrics by which, let's say, you can sort of judge a bank's health and future, how, which are you concerned about? I think for most banks, solvency is less of a problem than the other two. Uh, and that's what makes it different in 2008. Um, liquidity and profitability kind of go hand in hand because if a bank wants to keep its its deposits, one it has to it has to you know deposits have to have confidence in it. But then also if they want to avoid the long kind of drag of of capital leaving them and going towards things like money markets, they have to increase their deposit rates, and that's where you enter the more the, the profitability um, problem. And so I would say for for the long tail of small and medium banks, I would say it's both a liquidity problem. Um, and a, a profitability problem um, because those you know one of the ways they can try to shore up their liquidity is by sacrificing some of their profitability. Um, for for larger banks, um, it's less of a liquidity issue because they have you know very very large and liquid uh, securities books, diversified deposit base, and they now have access to the Fed's facility as well. Um, so for them, it just becomes I think a, a potential question of profitability. Uh, if some of those maybe large regionals have to like raise their deposit rates more, I, I think to the extent that it becomes a profitability problem will in large part depend on the Fed. If they really push forward with tightening, uh, that can continue to suck money towards things like money markets and away from bank deposits, and then that 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 therefore requires banks to to raise their deposit rates at a quicker rate. Whereas if the Fed eases off, um, that gives banks more of a reprieve. Because if the Fed keeps raising rates, the differential between what you can earn in a money market and what you can earn with a bank account, that will widen. So suck money out out of banks. So there's an element of panic. How uh, concerned do you, do you think that this issue of panic is where even if the regional banks are fine, their solvency is fine, but people fear sort of fee, fear, uh, fear feeds on itself. 
uh, as we have seen today with sort of with Credit Suisse. I, I think that's a big concern, but I also think even even if you're, you know, basically even from a rational perspective, um, at this point, if you're a business, for example, if you're if you're some sort of if you're operating a bank account that's a, that's above the insurance limit, you generally do want to take precautious actions because you you can't assume necessarily that FDIC is going to back every deposit, right? That you know that's it, it's something that at, at this stage seems somewhat likely, but you can't you can't base business decisions on that assumption. So you have to assume a somewhat adversarial mindset and say, okay, we want to either diversify accounts. Uh, use bigger accounts, um, sweep extra funds into money markets. You want to take defensive actions, and none of that is particularly good for the small and the medium-sized banks. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I would obviously advise people against making panic decisions or emotional decisions, but you do want to take rational, defensive decisions. And based on the on the current incentive structure they've they've set up, that 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 inclined people towards larger banks. Um, and towards um, money markets. Um, there's also, I mean, there, there are some like fintech companies that can kind of like um, manage your money for you. So it kind of like puts it out into multiple other banks. So you can kind of like have a large amount that is like FDIC insured because it's spread out. There are solutions like that that could benefit. Um, but overall, it's just, it's not a great environment uh, for small banks to operate in. And uh, small banks, because they're, um, they're less liquid in, on average. They have larger loan books and less securities books. Um, they have less use out of that that new Fed facility compared to, say, the very large regionals, uh, for example. So I, I would continue to be somewhat concerned about small bank profitability, and even if you know, even if deposits are insured, there's still disruption if you have, say, one one bank account with a small bank, and then they have liquidity problems. Um, Obviously, that can impair your business, even if it's just on a temporary basis. And so, there are a lot, like a lot of incentives for businesses to gravitate towards what they view as the most stable banks. So, Lynn, that old adage that I've heard many times, I've said it myself many times: rising rates are good for banks, high interest rates are good for banks. Is it true? I think we have to separate the rate versus getting there, um, because it, on average, if you have a super, if you have like an artificially low rate uh, that the, it's really hard for banks to make a profit because lending decisions don't really make sense. Um, there's a very narrow spread, whereas a more normalized rate environment is a better environment for banks. But if you go from super low rate to, to a high or normal rate in one year, that's obviously very problematic for banks because a lot of them locked in loans to securities at, at lower rates. And then when you have like the, you know, in basis point terms, the Fed's move is the biggest since like the 70s. Um, and on a percentage term, it's the biggest ever, going from you know zero rates uh, as, as high as they did, as quickly as they did on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, that that's basically the biggest one-year move um, that we have. And I think that's that's somewhat disruptive. Um, so I would describe it as as basically that there's a difference between the, the end state versus getting there. And if you try to get there too quickly, that's obviously very bad for banks. It also depends on what bank, right? Because going back to you know the, the prior discussion, it's not as bad for the big banks. I mean, they can they can face some disruptions. Obviously, some of their some of their loan books are not in great shape. But it, it's really bad for the, the the long tail of smaller banks because they're the ones that are you know under more deposit pressure um, or that can face more random liquidity runs um, that that hurt their ability to to run themselves. Lynn, what I like about your framework is you're not just macro. You also look at individual companies. And I know that you've analyzed individual banks. I think uh, the big, large banks, as well as, as the regionals, does this recent bout of turmoil and the fact that deposits are moving from regional banks to uh, large banks and may continue to do so, uh, does that make you uh, more cautious on investing in regionals more optimistic about investing in the large banks or more pessimistic about both? I think this whole thing kind of um, brought down the average base case for what the banking sector is going to look like, uh, but it changed the large and the large regionals. So the mega, the, basically the money center banks and the large regionals, um, they are less impacted overall than the long tail of, of small and medium-sized banks. Um, because if you look at those large ones, some of them do have significant unrealized loan books, but they're in a much less likely 
probability of having to realize those losses um, than those smaller ones. Uh, that, that was even before the Fed facility, but now with that new Fed facility, there's even more defense against them having to realize uh, those losses. Um, but any any bank up to, you know maybe not the top ones, but any bank is subject to deposit poles. Um, and even if they have access to the Fed facility, that's still a higher rate than they get with deposits. Um, so it, it still impair their profitability. So I think the overall space is less attractive, uh, but it's already been rapidly repriced for that less attractive world. And so I'm not particularly pessimistic on, say, the top 10 banks, um, even though uh, I am uh, you know, quite concerned about, say, that the long tail of the smaller banks. Mm. And l- let's explore that uh, Fed facility that was announced on Sunday, where the Federal Reserve will lend on a lengthy basis up to one year against investment securities that banks own. And by the way, they'll lend against them at par. So if you know a bank bought a Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae security at $100, and now it's trading at $80, the Fed won't lend them $80, they'll lend them $100. How effective do you think this will be in uh, you know helping bank solvency, liquidity, profitability, what we've been talking about? So I think it helps with liquidity more than it helps with solvency. I mean, banks, you know, if they have huge unrealized losses relative to their capital, um, that's still going to be a challenging time to deal with for the next um, you know few years because they have to manage their you know their liability rates compared to their asset rates. Uh, whereas for banks, where it's purely a liquidity problem, um, that can be quite helpful to them to to reduce their their tail risk associated with a large deposit pullout on a quick basis if their solvency is fine. Um, so I, I do think it reduces um, risk for especially the large and liquid banks. Um, as for setting a precedent. Um, you know, I, I keep bringing up the 1940s, and you know, when you have a period of financial repression, um, banks essentially become utilities, and it, it, it's really offensive to like um, kind of our capitalist view of the world. Um, but that's kind of the incentive structure they've set up when they've gotten in such a high debt position. So you know, a lot of people are treating this like the 1970s, where okay, there's inflation, let's raise rates. Um, whereas in many cases, this is more like the 1940s because we have fiscal-driven inflation, we have very high debt levels, and so it's hard to use monetary policy, you know, higher rates um, and and you know, tightening the monetary base as an effective tool against that. And so I, I, I think a lot of the things that people are surprised by with these sorts of actions that you know, kind of in some way socialize the banking system. You know, I, I think that's that's kind of the base case this decade. Unfortunately, I think that that's that's the direction they've kind of set themselves up for by designing the system as they have. Another belief I'd like to explore is the saying that the Federal Reserve will hike rates, the Federal Reserve will tighten monetary policy until something breaks. Has something broken? Is this the turning point? I do think this this represents breakage. Uh, we saw cracks last year with, um, you know, in the autumn of last year, the treasury market was getting quite illiquid, and then of course the UK, uh, you know, the gilt market did break. They had to, they had to do some intervention. Um, you know, from there we saw basically a, a weaker dollar. Uh, you know, there was kind of a also the treasury general account was was offsetting some of the Fed. Uh, quantitative tightening. So a lot of measures of domestic liquidity started trending sideways. Um, and and that kind of represented sort of a line in the sand. And in, in recent months, as we've kind of gotten back down closer to that sand, we did see this start to break. And so I, I do think in many ways, um, they've reached their point where it's hard to get much tighter than this. Now, there, it, it's 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 currently not hitting the treasury market. So if they want to tighten further, they technically could. It would come with probably a lot of bank problems. Um, and probably uh, heighten the probability of recession. So it's not like they it's not like it's an emergency where they have to stop right away. but I did I do think that for for most practical purposes, any attempts to further say draw liquidity out of out of bank reserves is probably going to re- result in more usage of those types of liquidity facilities and therefore offset some of their liquidity pull. Um, and then whether or not they want to keep raising rates, partially comes down to whether or not they want to really hurt that long tail, of smaller and and less liquid banks, and so I, I think that you know, the end game was always going to be um, when you have debt this high and when you have a, a financial oppression scenario is that inflation is going to run higher than rates for a long period of time, and the question always was what is the path to get there, uh, and and what is the order of things breaking, um, and 
a lot of people are looking for credit events, um, which you know I, I still think there might be credit events, especially in, in say commercial real estate. Um, but but credit events are largely not the problem. It's about basically liquidity, um, you know, uh, sovereign debt. That was that was like I said the issue last year, and then this time it turned out in the banking system. So I I, I do think they're at the point where it's harder to keep tightening beyond what they've already done, despite the fact that I think inflation is going to be an, a recurring problem. Maybe not a problem this year. Uh, we'll see what happens with, with ongoing energy and, and China reopening and things like that. But I do think it's probably going to be a recurring problem and that it's really not something that monetary policy can address effectively because it's more about the fiscal issues and you know the, the, the real world issues throughout the economy. I think it's a really important point you made that you can't compare prior crises. And 2008 was all about credit risk. And this uh, period, at least so far, is not. There are two risks that fixed income investors, if you're lending someone money, face. Number one, credit risk, they won't pay you back. Number two, you will be paid back, but the cash flows you'll be paid back with are worth less because interest rates have risen or they're worth more because interest rates have fallen. And uh, I'd like to just you know put up a chart from uh, Lynn Alden Investment Strategy showing a chart that looks like apparently safe. This is a chart of uh, cash and treasuries on bank balance sheets as a percentage of total assets. So it reached a bottom right before 2008. So banks had very low levels of liquid cash, and that was a huge problem, and their, their credit loans went bad. But since then, it has exploded higher. So banks have lots of money. They have cash. They have treasuries. So I ask you, Lynn, what's the problem? The problem is it comes down to that liquidity that basically some of those treasuries as well as um, other agency securities are underwater because interest rates have gone up so quickly. And so basically the, the problem in 2008 was banks were super aggressive with their lending standards. Um, you know, they they lent into subprime. They were very heavily focused on real estate. They were just, you know, loose underwriting standards and they had very, very little, um, you know, risk-free uh, assets, things like cash and treasuries. Um, whereas now, that's not the problem. They, they have plenty of of, of very riskless uh, types of assets, and they've ha- they've been pretty uh, good overall with their lending standards. Um, the problem is just the, the the sheer speed with which rates uh, increased put a lot of their safe uh, assets underwater. Which again is is somewhat fine as long as they can hold to maturity, which the larger and more liquid banks are far more likely to be able to do compared to either the small banks or ones like Silicon Valley Bank, where they had a very unusual deposit base, where it's, it's almost all businesses, um, they're almost all their deposits are uninsured, so they have a higher incentive to want to flee, should there be any sign of a problem, um, and so I, I think. To the extent that this matters, it's very much bank dependent. And you know, ironically, in 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 two thousand eight, for example, there were there were some banks that were just completely unharmed by it. You know, they never got into the weird um, lending behavior that some of the the large banks did. And so there are a number of of small and medium sized banks that just continued functioning uh, because they never they never engaged in that type of behavior. Whereas here, in some cases, it's the opposite. Basically, the larger banks are in many ways better positioned, whereas those smaller banks are the ones that are under more pressure. Again, not because they necessarily did anything wrong. I mean, some banks did, um, but a lot of these like small and medium-sized banks, they kind of operated the same way they're always supposed to, and just it, it's a very hard environment to have that that speed of rate increases um, and simultaneously decreasing liquidity in the system. You know, uh, uh, doing quantitative tightening, shrinking the monetary base, um, all this happening at once puts a ton of pressure on that long tail of smaller banks. It's kind of like, you know, the way the way the Fed currently works is like if you're gonna if you're gonna screw in a screw, you know, and it, you know it's like for them instead of like turning the screw, they're turning the whole world. And that's what happens when you're like rapidly increasing or decreasing the size of the monetary base of the country. Uh, it, it's like basically, you know, banks are trying to do their job, and it's like you're, the whole world's moving around them, and it makes it very hard to do their job. And of course, there's some that are better at risk management than others, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that it's just a hard environment to operate in, even if you have overall good uh, lending standards and risk management. So, for risk management, there's credit risk and interest rate risk. So. Credit risk is something that regulators are very concerned about. Lots of regulation. Everyone's got out of magnifying glass. Are they going to pay back? Are they going to pay back? And Silicon Valley Bank actually 
I, I believe, I mean, I've, I've looked into this, they had pretty good loans. I mean, they lent to venture uh, capital funds and, and companies, they lent against portfolios so uh, for, for capital calls. So their, their loans actually had a very, very low um, d- default rate historically. But then now we're going to put up this chart. So the problem was not credit risk. It was interest rate risk. And, and this chart is the, uh, the bank losses uh, on their securities, which is vast, vast, vast majority due to interest rate risk. And can you just explain why the Federal Reserve raising rates from 0% to 4%? I mean, you know, why, why did, that doesn't sound like it hurts anyone. Like, why are we seeing such extreme losses of, you know, 500, 600, 700 billion dollars of unrealized losses on the, on the bank balance sheets? Uh, and and how does that connect to the Fed raising rates? So if you buy a, a 10-year treasury, uh, note that yields 1.5%, um, and then higher inflation and higher interest rates come, and now that now that's yielding 4%. Um, basically, if you were to sell that onto the market, the, you know no one's going to buy it for a 1.5% yield when they can buy current treasuries with a you know 4% yield, whatever the number happens to be that time. And so what happens is the older, lower yielding security has to be discounted in price so that it has the same yield to maturity as these newer, higher yielding uh, ones do. And so a lot of those are marked down by, you know, say 20%, for example, in order to adjust to the current rate. Now that doesn't change the fact that uh, if you hold that that treasury till maturity, you're gonna get the full amount back. Uh, but it does mean in the meantime, you're holding this thing at a loss. And if your funding gets pulled, right? It, like if you're, if you're using liquid depositor money and it gets pulled, then you have to sell that for the loss and realize the loss. And some banks, you know, if, if they got way too into duration, uh, like Silicon Valley Bank, for example, you know, you, you, you know, the, the, the stimulus of the Fed flooded the system with deposits in, in, you know, 2020 and 2021. Tons of new deposits came in. Banks had to put them somewhere. Um, and, you know, if you put them into shorter duration assets, you're generally in a pretty good position now. Uh, whereas if you put them primarily into long duration assets, you know, 2022 was like the worst year ever for long duration treasuries. It was like you know, the worst year in like modern history. And so if, if a bank was overexposed, basically bad risk management, overexposed to duration, they can have these unrealized losses that, that you know, come close to or exceed their uh, amount of bank capital, which makes them more exposed. Whereas other ones that are more diversified, you know, they're sitting on unrealized losses, but they're smaller than their amount of capital and they have a more diverse deposit base. And so they're less likely to, you know, have to sell at a loss. And then even if they do, it's less likely to sink the whole bank. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that U.S. Treasury yields surged higher last year. Right now, you can get a 4.8% yield on your cash with Treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying U.S. Treasuries is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of Treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity, so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 4.8% on your cash, go to public.com forward slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thank you, and let's get back to the episode. Do you think Silicon Valley Bank would have made it if the Federal Reserve facility, the BTFP, had already been in place? I mean, it's possible they they could have potentially sold them. I mean, they they could have like loaned them out instead of um, had to sell them and realize that loss. Uh, you know, their their particular case though, they had such significant unrealized losses relative to their capital um, that they're they're kind of an outlier case. Um, so I, I, I do think this facility prevents other banks from having a similar issue. I'm not sure it would have been you know, enough uh, to help there. I, I think that that question will largely depend on how, how long rates stay at these levels. Um, because if you, know, if you have that significant of unrealized losses relative to your capital for a prolonged period of time, and you start relying on those facilities, then your, your funding costs start going up. And so that, that starts to present a significant profitability problem 
Um, so it, it certainly could have helped them in the near term, um, but it still would have raised questions about their long-term viability given that they made such a big bet on duration. And uh, they're not the only one. Bank of America, and again, this is stated because it's got a huge, huge, huge bank, but I think they've got over $100 billion of uh, unrealized securities losses on, on their portfolio. And money is, is flowing in. They have an uh, incredibly low percentage of uninsured depositors as a percentage of the deposit base. And there are many reasons why you know, Bank of America is, is going to make it. But you know, let's say there's a parallel world where Bank of America doesn't have you know, over $100 billion of unrealized losses. What's different in this world? Is Bank of America going to be more cautious about making making loans? Well, I think partially it's going to come down to being more conservative uh, with lending as well as things like dividends and share buybacks um, because you want to have plenty of capital on hand to to withstand any sort of liquidity shocks or you know unrealized losses relative to your capital. Um, so it's, it, it, I think in some ways it could be a, a, a profitability sink uh, for a period of time. Um, you know, the large banks, basically, if you, if you think of deposit base as like a bunch of cups of water, it, it's really hard to pull all that water out, right? I mean, there, there's only so many places it can go into. Um, and so it's not like deposits can all just flow out of, say, JP Morgan, Bank of America, and just flow out of the whole system and, and, and crush all the system. Instead, it's like, you know, some deposits can leak out into things like money markets uh, and treasuries, um, but most of the deposits are, are you know, kind of sticky and they, they can shift around and so for any smaller bank is, is you know, vulnerable, but those like big four banks that each one is a pretty significant percentage of total deposits, it's really hard for that scale of deposit to, to, to flow out unless that bank had such a severe problem that it was extremely warranted. So I don't really view the the big four banks, including Bank of America, as a solvency risk here. Uh, we also I don't I don't know Bank of America's full hedging position. I would imagine that they that they hedge some of that duration risk better than uh, Silicon Valley Bank. But even even if they didn't, their their losses are smaller than their total capital. So it's not as severe as Silicon Valley Bank. Plus they have they have just a way less uh, skittish depositor base. Um, because of one, their size, and two, the types of clients that they that they accept. Um, and so, I, I do think we'll see generally more conservative behavior among banks going forward. Uh, but again, it wasn't you know this this wasn't really caused by bad bank lending decisions. It, the 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 risk that somebody's made was a a bet on duration, which is in in, in you know a more understandable risk, I think. Absolutely. And um, one chart we can put up now, excuse me, is just the time when banks bought a lot of these securities, when the 30-year mortgage rate was very low, when the 10-year treasury rate was very low. And the, uh, as interest rates rose, that is when they, they have a, a lot of those losses. So Lynn, so far, we've talked a lot about the asset side. Now let's talk about the liability side. As I mentioned, Bank of America, vast majority of deposits, depositors are insured, so they really should have no reason there uh, to, to withdraw their money. They're under the limit. Uh, I think Silicon Valley Bank at year end, 87% of deposits were uninsured. They, they're banked businesses. And this was a very stable business model in, over the past decade because interest rates were at zero. So, oh yeah, who cares? 0%, 0.15%. It's my bank. I, I trust my bank. Do you think that uh, they're going to be more outflows and yeah i mean like do, do you think that there are only two dominoes to fall number one silicon valley bank and number two signature bank or do you think there are you know going to be some some bank panics that may not be systemic but this is something we can we should expect i think there could be more out there in the smaller bank land because you know a, a lot of those don't have significant security books um, they have a lot of illiquid loans, and they might be high-quality loans. I think a lot of them are high-quality loans, uh, but if they face a bank run for any reason, they could run into severe liquidity problems, and they, they, you know, they can't really use that facility. And so they could either fold or they could rely on um, you know, high-cost funding to, to get them through that. Um, and so I, I think both the profitability and the liquidity of some of the smaller banks are going to be challenged for a while. It also largely comes down to a decision by the Fed. Um, you know, to what extent? You know, now they have a clear trade-off between raising rates versus uh, keeping the banking system somewhat stable. Uh, you know, the the higher or the longer that they hold rates here, the more it kind of drags um, deposit rates up to their their current level of interest. 
and you know that that's fine for the big banks because you know one is everybody wants an account there, so they're they're less quick to to raise their rates. Um, uh, whereas like the you know the smaller banks, if they have to raise their deposit rates, then this liquidity problem starts becoming a a profitability problem. And if a profitability problem gets bad enough, it can become a solvency problem, right? I mean, if if basically liabilities start paying higher rates than than assets, and if that if that is going to persist for a while, then the bank's in trouble. You know, the the ironic thing is we actually see that among central banks, they're just lucky because they can't have bank runs um, and, and can't go bankrupt. So the Federal Reserve right now, for example, um, you know their liability side, they made the decision to raise those rates significantly, whereas they're actually holding long duration assets. They're holding treasuries and mortgage backed securities. Um, so I mean, I, I think the overall unrealized Fed losses were like you know something like a trillion dollars at the peak. Um, you know, probably now it's 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 you know hundreds and hundreds of billions. Whereas even their even their operating profit has turned into an operating loss because and that's that kind of shows what happens if you actually do raise your deposit rates super high while you're holding um, you know uh, low yielding assets, right? So it's obviously a severe case because most most deposit rates won't go up that quickly relative to what the Fed's liability side did. But that's kind of an example of what can happen if deposit rates keep grinding up at a quick rate. So do you think that rate hikes are, are going to be over? Do you think it's one more next week at the FOMC meeting and then it's over? How long do you think they can continue to do quantitative quantitative tightening? And you know, where do you think Fed policy is, You know, let's say, in one year on March 15th of 2024. And by the way, it might be the one year anniversary of the Fed raising rates uh, on March 15, 2022. I don't, I don't know about that. But uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they hold uh, uh, flat uh, this month or if they go 25. Um, I, I'd be surprised if they go any above that. Um, I think it'll partially depend on what happens the next couple of days. I mean, we're watching uh, Europe have significant problems now. Uh, so some of this is, is contagious. Um, as for betting a year in the future, I mean, at that point, you're betting on human decisions. Um, so in some ways, you're looking at numbers, but you're also betting on human decisions relative to those numbers. Um, so I, I think a general framework investors have to have is that this decade, it's going to be very hot, hard to have positive real rates and any sort of normalized persistent basis. There might be brief periods of time, especially in recessions, where you get the positive um, real rates. Um, but the idea that, that we're just going to go back to like this long period of, of positive real rates like we had in the 80s and the 90s, for example, I think that's not going to happen. And the problem is that a, a, interest rates are, I think, going to be in, increasingly politicized. right? So now that the Fed is unprofitable, now that uh, small and medium-sized banks are pressured, um, you know, uh, we saw, for example, in, in Congress the other day. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was was questioning Jerome Powell and basically saying, like, what, what are you going to say to the two million Americans that you're projecting you're going to put in, under work with your rate hikes? You know, it, basically, in these types of financial pressure scenarios, um, interest rates become very politicized. So, if you look back in the in the '70s and '80s, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter uh, put Volcker in. Um, and that, you know, arguably that hurt his reelection chances, uh, but he he viewed it as an important thing to do for stability. And then and then Reagan also let let Volcker, um, you know, continue doing what he was was doing. And so for for a long stretch of presidents, both Democratic and Republican, you had a, a high degree of independence where they didn't really um, kind of question central bank decisions as much. Uh, whereas you started seeing under Trump. He was not happy with Jerome Powell raising rates, and now you're seeing it from, uh, you know, even though Biden hasn't really gone that route, you've seen it among, uh, you know, uh, Democrats in, in Congress where they've they've questioned um, Jerome Powell's roots. And so I think I think a challenge is that both over the next year and longer term, monetary policy in many ways becomes politicized. The Fed essentially becomes the the fourth branch of government governments. Um, and so it's hard to predict all out, but I think, I think the, the baseline assumption or the baseline math, the way that it kind of works out is that rates are going to spend most of their time submerged below inflation with perhaps brief exceptions during disinflationary shocks. There was an argument that was gaining a lot of credibility earlier this year, which is that the U S economy 
is much less sensitive to interest rate hikes than previously imagined. The treasury borrowed at you know a six-year duration, seven-year duration. The U.S. consumer borrowed you know as long as a thirty-year mortgage rate, and that uh, you know the the argument of oh rates can't go high because the government can't afford it, U.S. consumers can't afford it. Oh, uh, banks banks actually will benefit from it. It's a, it's a little ironic that banks were actually sort of the, the first uh, uh, one to fall. Do you and, and that's because their liabilities in many cases deposits are instant. They they have to you know fork o- fork over the money. Uh, but what do you think about the governments and U.S. corporations, which you'll borrow at twenty year issue a twenty year bond, or some people who have a thirty year mortgage, who might be a little more immune from high interest rates uh, than than the banks? So on a corporation basis, it really varies on the company. I mean, I, I look at some of these energy pipelines, for example, and, and some of them have like 20-year average duration, um, fixed rate, uh, low low yielding debt. And so they're sitting pretty well. They're, they're rather protected against interest rate increases. Um, uh, you know, obviously some more troubled companies don't have that kind of luxury. Um, so it's a little harder for, for companies with, with, you know, more credit risk. But uh, the average healthy uh, kind of blue chip company is actually pretty well positioned. They're, that is is pretty long duration and submerged below the inflation rate, so they're not really complaining. Um, also, the the U.S. consumer has um, more fixed rate debt uh, as a ratio compared to a lot of other countries. So, in many cases, that that argument that we are more protected from interest rate increases is true. Now. As you've seen with the, the long tail of smaller banks, that's obviously not true for the banks, if you, especially if you raise rates this quickly, right? The, the sheer speed of, of rate increases combined with uh, pulling liquidity out of the system has pressured the banks. So that, that's a breaking point. And then two, it also reduces everybody's mobility. So you know they might not be underwater with their home, but they also can't move. Um, and you also have trouble, you know, building new homes, uh, basically all that, that kind of whole segment has frozen up and then also you get problems in, in commercial real estate. So, so really the, the, the two sensitive sectors to interest rates are one, obviously real estate because it's so debt focused and then two, um, tech. And that's because, you know, if, you know, for a long time, it was a kind of the assumption of of just zero yields and and money's cheap, so hold anything other than money. And so people monetize equity, right? They're willing to pay these super high multiples. And so the company doesn't have to worry about being profitable. They can just keep issuing equity to employees and and share and investors. And then that allows them to grow quicker because they're underpricing their product or service. And but if you if you then get a, a real cost of capital, um, you know, it crushes their equity valuations, so they can't rely on constant equity issuance. So they have to raise their prices, try to be more profitable. That that then reduces their growth rate. You kind of realize that their their prior growth rate was in large part an illusion based on mispricing, um, and and so the the overall addressable market of those growth companies, those tech companies, um, as well as you know their appropriate valuation is now much reduced. And then you get slower. You know, you get layoffs. You get slower. Um, uh, employment um, activity, and so really, real estate and tech are highly uh, sensitive. The people's mobility is highly sensitive, and now that we've seen that, you know, uh, outside of the large banks, um, a lot of banks are vulnerable to these rate hikes. And so, I, I think in general, um, that's where you get a challenge in raising rates, even though inflation is an ongoing concern. And then, as far as the the Treasury is concerned. You know, even though their average duration is like five or six years, um, there it's kind of skewed, right? So, so something like half of their debt is is really short term, and then the other half is like spread out over a variety of durations. Um, and so, even though their average is five or six, I mean, really, it's a lot of it is in the first few years. Um, and you know, a challenge is that you know, in in the nineteen seventies, a lot of the money supply growth, the majority of it, was from bank lending. That's because you had peak demographics. You know, baby boomers were entering their home buying years, and so a lot of monetary policy was focused on slowing down that lending growth, especially because we also had a you know oil supply side problem. Uh, whereas the inflation you saw in the 1940s and the inflation you saw in the 2020s was not because of excessive bank lending. So banks didn't lend much in the 1940s. Uh, banks were not lending excessively. Um, over the past decade, including over the past couple of years. And instead, the inflation was largely because of very, very large fiscal deficits. They were just flooding money into the, the private sector. Um, and the ironic thing is that increasing interest rates results in larger deficits. So even though it can, in the near term, 
reduce economic activity and reduce inflation by squeezing the private sector, it also ex- ex- like exaggerates the ongoing source of money creation, which is the federal government. Um, and you know, basically, if you squeeze banks hard enough, and they have to start getting rid of their securities to you know support their deposit base, then who becomes the buyer of treasuries? Um, and so I, I think that you know, if you if you were to squeeze the banking sector hard enough, uh, that eventually gets pushed into the sovereign level, and that's where they have to reverse. And so the question is, will they will they try to push it that hard, or will they start kind of slowing down now? And I think the answer is they're probably going to start slowing down now, especially because the more they try to tighten, probably the more you'll see usage of these liquidity facilities. I want to ask you about government deficits, debt, and the degree to which they're unsustainable. After the great financial crisis, when the U.S., uh, as a as a stimulus measure, uh, ran a significant significant deficit, which at the time was considered huge, relevant to, to now, it's not huge. There are a lot of people saying, "Oh, debt as a percentage of GDP, it's it's unsustainable." Recently, a school of thought called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, is that debt itself, whether it's large, whether it's small, it, it's it's always sustainable. A government that prints its own currency can always pay its bills because, you know, if I owe 10,000 Jack Farley bucks, I'll just print 10,000 Jack Farley bucks. Um, I don't think I've ever asked you about mo- modern monetary theory. And and so, so the, the central premise of one of the central premises of modern monetary theory is that the limiting factor is inflation. If inflation is low, like, for example, it is in China, the amount of money printing that the Chinese government can do is unlimited up until the point that inflation becomes a problem. And, and then you know, borrowing costs can increase. But um, on a very philosophical, non-practical level, do you agree or disagree with this, that premise? And then we can get into the specifics on the, on the debt ceiling and everything. So a government that prints its own currency um, can't default nominally unless it chooses to. Um, it can always print the difference. It can always control its central bank to, to print the difference. Um, and so that's why you rarely see sovereign defaults um, when priced in their own currency. Instead, you usually kill the debt through inflation. Basically, if, if debts are super high relative to income and economic output, those debts are going to lose purchasing power one way or another. It could be from default, it could be from restructuring, or it could be through inflation. Um, and the MMT description of how that works, I think, is accurate. Uh, but I think the real world challenges that because if you look at MMT, the, essentially the argument there is instead of using monetary policy to control inflation, you use fiscal policy. And so if, if inflation is low, they basically argue that there's, there's more room for deficit spending to put more money into the economy. And if inflation is high, then you have to pull back on the deficit spending. The problem is the real world is politically gridlocked, right? Um, you know, have, like, basically, if you, if you go to an MMT right now, like Mosler, they would say, okay, just cut fiscal, spe- cut, um, fiscal deficits. Like, well, good luck, you know, because uh, on one hand, they're not going to cut entitlement spending. Um, it, it's very politically unpopular to do that. You know, the Democrats certainly won't. And even, even, even the, for example, one way that President Trump, uh, former President Trump, different, uh, di- uh, separated himself from the rest of the Republican Party is that he's not in favor of cutting a lot of these. Whereas you've generally seen the, the some interest in cutting them among the Republican Party. So there's there's really large wings of of, of politicians that don't want to cut those. There's also, you know, what is it like 850 billion dollars in military spending. Um, uh, at a time when Russia uh, is doing what they're doing, uh, that's not going to get cut. Um, you know, the, the the military industrial complex is big and alive, um, and now has a new catalyst to cite. So that's not going to be trimmed. Um, and then Republicans are are very opposed to increasing taxes. Um, and so th- there's there's gridlock on multiple sides about all, all the angles that that could be used to to rein in the deficit, and then ironically at this at this stage because the economy is so financialized, if you if even if you did try to reduce the deficit, you probably would get less tax revenue because you'd have a, a asset prices do very poorly, and so you'd probably end up ironically widening um, the deficit from from that angle. So it's actually very very challenging to reduce the deficit and therefore rein in inflation, and. So, so the part the, the part that I think is is somewhat correct out of out of monet- modern monetary theorists currently is that they point out that raising rates can actually exacerbate inflation, and that's because you have a very fiscal driven inflation. So that's that's the part where I would agree with them on. But if you look at their proposals, they say, okay, we'll cut rates to zero. It's like, well, I mean, if inflation's running that hot 
and there's that much fiscal stimulus and you cut rates to zero, then it encourages massive borrowing. You know, people should should buy money and, and buy almost anything else, right? It, you know, if, if Turkey cuts rates to zero, what should you do? You should borrow lira and buy almost anything that's not lira, right? And then, so that's why normally in these types of high debt scenarios, that's why you get capital controls and financial repression because the, the answer of raising rates doesn't work and the answer of holding rates low doesn't work because if you raise rates too high, you exacerbate fiscal-driven inflation. And if you cut rates low, you encourage massive money creation through borrowing because the, the currency is not keeping up with, with inflation. And so normally what they do is they try to end up holding rates low, but then blocking various things that you can you, you can borrow money to buy. So for example, Turkey has imposed restrictions on corporations, say, borrowing lira to buy foreign currency, for example. Um, uh, that that's that's common. I mean, in the United States, for example, nineteen forties, the you know the thirties through the seventies, it was legal to own gold, um, and there's all sorts of other kind of just uh, restrictions on the ability to capital to move around globally. It gets kind of siloed, um, and so I think that's kind of the scenario that that is is a risk going forward. Is that neither high interest rates nor low interest rates are a solution to what is largely a structural deficit problem? Can you explain the theory that? high interest rates can actually exacerbate fiscal inflation as i think the mainstream belief is that high interest rates fight inflation and that's why the federal reserve has has risen uh, raised interest rates so much over the past year you know if we back up for a second there's there's really three ways to make broad money one is bank lending so when banks make loans they make deposits um, two is if qe happens um, and they buy uh, assets from non-banks specifically um, that that can increase the broad money supply. That that's generally not a huge factor. Um, and then and then three, um, if there's large fiscal deficits that are then monetized by either the central bank or the banking system, um, that increases money broad money supply. Um, and when you have excessive money creation through uh, you know either excessive bank lending or excessive fiscal deficits, that can be quite inflationary um, over over a long period of time. And so in the 1970s, most of the money creation was bank lending. So raising interest rates to slow down that bank lending made sense. Uh, whereas in the 1940s and the 2020s, it's not excessive bank lending. It's excessive deficits. It's pouring more money into the economy, pouring, you know, just, just you know, basically if you flip it around, um, those deficits are a stimulus. Those are, those are surplus for the economy. Which is bad if you have inflation, right? It's just it's just more money pouring into the system, um, and right. So for periods of time, the Fed can tighten, right? So so by raising rates, by reducing um, their balance sheet, they put pressure on the private sector, which can which is somewhat offsetting the public sector. But that public sector has like you know the the next like five, 10, 15 years is nothing but deficits, and and it's just nothing but growing deficits. So if you squeeze the private sector for a year or two, that doesn't change the fact that you have the structural backdrop of inflation. And then ironically, what it does is if, if you increase interest rates, like let's say we just jack up to 10%, this, you know, this is, you know, go super high, like the Taylor rule sh- says we should do, well, then those fiscal deficits are going to get even bigger. And mm-hmm. when you have gridlock around what to do about it, it's, you know, you're not going to cut entitlements. You're not going to cut military spending. You're not going to materially raise taxes, most likely, unless you had a massive change in the voter base and 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 you know politicians. So those deficits just get bigger, and it's actually just more money pouring into the economy. Um, and so that that's why, you know, people often I think are too simplistic. They say, well, if, if inflation is too high, then raise rates. If inflation is too low, then then cut rates. Whereas really, you have to go deeper, and you have to ask, what is the source of money creation? And what would exacerbate that or slow that down? And that's why it's a really hard problem when you have fiscal, you know, at least in the 1940s, the fiscal driven inflation had an end date, which was the, the war and the, the immediate rebuilding is over. And so you can get back to a period of austerity and get inflation under control. Uh, they basically, you know, they inflated a lot of the debt away. Uh, but then they were able to stabilize. Whereas the challenge now is that there's no war that's about to end, you know. Um, e- even if, say, the, the actual war ends, uh, that's not really the current source of money creation. It's, it's basically the, the, the entitlement we've built up over decades. Um, and so I think that's an ongoing structural issue, and interest rates don't really address it, and in many cases can make it worse. 
I see. So the the argument of raising rates uh, independent of the effect on the consumer, if, if interest rates are at 10%, the government will borrow less money because it's incentivized to, to borrow less money. It will have to run a surplus. If they don't, though, and they keep the deficit at the same level, they're just paying more money out. And so now instead of Two, you know, people who own bonds getting two percent now they they get ten percent. So that's an argument I've seen Warren Mosler discuss, but I actually never really understood it until you you said that. And, so thanks. and that's a key insight that I think you phrased it well. That you know, the private sector is market driven, and so their incentive buys by you know rate, especially real rates, on whether or not to you know like borrow or not. Whereas the government really isn't. Uh, a lot of this is locked in and gridlocked. Right, so so whether rates are zero or ten percent or anywhere in between, it's not going to materially affect fiscal decisions over the next few years, and that's why those interest rate increases are not really uh, the most effective tool against inflation and can actually exacerbate it. And and I think the challenge is that you can get like a year where it seems like it's working, like 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 recently, because you say, well, I mean, you were raising rates, inflation's coming off. And it's like, well, yeah, because we're pushing the economy towards recession. You know, we're squeezing parts of the private sector, which is fine, but the problem is that's that's inherently a temporary thing. You know, the Fed the Fed can't do QT for the next three years. They can't raise rates to ten percent. There's all sorts of things they can't do. Meanwhile, those fiscal deficits are still flowing. Right, and base effects that you talked about. If the price of oil is at one hundred and twenty dollars in June of twenty twenty two. If 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 it stays at one hundred and twenty dollars, which is ridiculously expensive, inflation will will be zero. So headline inflation relying on food and energy that has been declining, and that gave the disinflationistas a lot of confidence coming in from let's say October to January, and that you know to some degree is responsible for the the rally in in all risk assets um, dur- during that time period. Do you think that was a a false signal of disinflation? And and you know, what do you think about the recent inflation readings, um, uh, particularly core inflation? I don't think it's false. I just think it's temporary. Um, you know, if you look back in the '40s and the '70s, uh, inflation came in waves. Um, there are periods of of fighting back, either either price and wage controls or central bank trying to tighten things up. And so, you know, once once it was clear last year that the Fed was, you know, aggressively tightening, my my uh, stance shifted towards okay, structural inflation, but temporary disinflation. Um, and and then it became. A question of how deep are they going to try to push it, um, and I, I think the the recent episodes show it's really hard to to, to push it all the way back down. Um, you know, the energy currently is under control, um, uh, but but labor is really not so much. Um, one thing that kind of uh, I think complicates the data is that the shelter component of CPI operates on a lag. Um, so early on in the inflation spike, that actually understated how much inflation was happening because home prices and rent prices were higher than shelter CPI. Uh, whereas now, shelter CPI is is still grinding higher, while a lot of the a lot of those other uh, the you know, the actual things we're paying have already kind of flatlined or in some cases contracted a little bit. So I think it, it, you know usually CPI will understate inflation, but ironically during during kind of brief disinflationary periods, it can actually overstate uh, inflation temporarily. So I still think we're in a somewhat disinflationary window. Obviously one of the big questions was how much is China reopening, right? When we're trying to you know reduce energy prices and things like that, how, how much is that gonna be impactful? So far that's been overridden by some of these other forces. Um, we'll see what happens when they really get into full gear, maybe later this year. Um, so I don't really have a firm view on what happens with inflation over, say, a six-month period. Instead, my high-conviction view is that as long as the sources of inflation are still there, which is very large fiscal deficits um, and real-world constraints on energy and infrastructure and you know, real-world stuff, that that's as long as those two pieces are in place, that's a, a structurally inflationary backdrop, and the best we can do. Uh, is temporarily rein it in, uh, probably at the cost of a recession. And then when you try to accelerate out of the recession, all those forces are still there. Inflation comes right back because the tools that we're using to address inflation are not actually addressing the the core underlying problem. In 2022, many were worried about a recession. You saw some risk, but you said, oh, I think the economy will be resilient. I think that's the, the, the economy uh, can take it. The economy can be strong. And you know, for, for, for the most part, you have been proven right. 
what about now? I see in your most recent note on um, Linalda Investment Strategy, you were saying we're, there's some recession risk. How are you, you thinking about this? And as well, the bond market, a massive bull steepening short-term interest rates going, you know, flying down. Uh, is the bond market telling us a recession is coming? I know the bond market was so, so wrong in 2021, but is there a chance it's right now? So I, I think overall, basically, the way I would describe the economy over the past year is that it's decelerating, but it's been hanging in there. And it's large part because there's so much money in the system. Um, and so it, it, it was looking more recession-like without actually being a recession. Um, this recent issue with the banks uh, actually in some ways both adds a catalyst in, in, in both directions. So on one hand, um, if this ends up being the ceiling for overall Fed tightening, uh, roughly speaking, um, you know, and a liquidity floods back into the market, um, that can actually be attractive uh, for the economy. So, for example, if you look back at the repo spike of 2019, uh, in that few months that it, it you know happened after that, in addition to getting rebounding in asset prices, you actually had a, a minor rebound in economic indicators uh, because you had more liquidity kind of entering the the you know the market. You had the dollar come off. You had you know, a number of things like that that were good for for not just financial assets, but actually real economic indicators. Obviously, they, that got killed by by the COVID crash, but for that kind of brief window, that's what was happening. So it's possible that you get like a brief window here where liquidity, um, you know, kind of uh, you know, kind of presents like you know, like a, a bottoming in liquidity, and you have a decent uh, period of time. On the other hand, it's largely going to depend on bank behavior. Right, so if, if banks really tighten up here, uh, which it looks like they might, then they might be able to override that liquidity. And so the way I would describe it is that I think we're we're you know the, the general direction is towards recession. Um, I I doubt it'll be as severe as you know some people are concerned with. I think it might be kind of like the post dot com uh, bubble recession, which was actually in, in many ways the the mildest recession, um, you know, of, of many recessions before or after it. Uh, but again, at large, it depends on human decisions. This is an actively managed system. And so it depends on what the, what the humans at the helm, uh, do of it. Um, I, I think there are a number of sectors that are resilient, uh, things like healthcare, um, uh, energy pipelines. Um, you know, I think that there are a number of spaces that are interesting, uh, whereas uh, I, I think commercial real estate, I, I wouldn't really touch that. Um, unprofitable tech, I'd be highly selective with, with what I'm interested in, in touching there. Uh, but I think other parts of the economy are fairly resilient, and it just depends on how, how much we want to do policy mistakes to, to see if we can disrupt that resiliency. Mm. So you think the Fed might be nearing a pause so that means short-term interest rates probably will, will fall more, but then you're also a structural inflationist, so long-term interest rates on the margin can go up. So is it safe to say that you think the yield curve will steepen or, or actually get less negative? Like now it's, well, you know, a week ago it was 80 basis points and now it's probably, I don't know, 50, 60, I don't know. But you think it will you know, get towards a, a real steep yield curve enough where banks can actually borrow short and lend long? I think in the next six months, I'm honestly highly uncertain of, of the shape of the yield curve because there's so many human decisions that go into that. I think I think if if more people like if you look at break evens, the market does not expect long term inflation, right? So if the market determines for one reason or another that long term inflation is going to be a problem, it, then it very much might try to drive those long end yields higher, and then you could get some sort of situation like the like the UK ran into where they have to intervene in the long end of the curve to prevent a liquidity problem. Um, and so, but I don't know if the market's gonna realize that in, in six months, right? They, they could be more focused, uh, perhaps rightly, on recession risk for a six, for a six month period. So um, I think it really depends on, 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 on path dependence, right? And I think that in this kind of stage right here, um, I think we have to be honest with what we know and what we don't know. And I think the next six months are really unclear uh, in that regard, whereas I think the longer term picture is what's more clear. Hmm. So, Lynn, there are two periods of inflation over the past century, the 1970s and the 1940s. In the 1970s, interest rates, bond yields rose steadily with inflation. In the 1940s, they did not, in large part due to government policy. You think that the next decade will be a lot more like the 1940s. I know that in the 1970s, the stock market performed horribly. What did the stock market do in the 1940s? 
it chopped around, um, uh, much like the 70s. Um, basically, you had low valuations. I mean, obviously, you had a war going on, so people were not very bullish. Um, it, it, it really kind of bottomed around um, uh, when the United States started um, decisively winning over Japan. Uh, you know, there were a handful of key naval battles that really, you know, once those happened, it was basically the, a long grind towards a victory. Um, and so the, the market kind of bottomed based on the war, right? So it's actually, it's, it's pro probably not a great signal for what to expect because it was moved around by by that type of force. You know, in, in general, if you have financial oppression, so you have super low yields compared to what, what inflation is doing, um, that should be pretty good for a lot of types of equities. Um, but it, it depends that there's other factors big enough to hold that down. A lot of times, if you look at emerging markets, and in many ways, this is like an emerging market style of recession, where you have high inflation uh, and currency problems, but economic contraction. A lot of times you look at those, you know, the stock prices don't do bad nominally uh, in the local currency, they just do bad in dollar terms, uh, and basically harder currency. So I, I think in general, the stock market is unlikely to do well, uh, in purchasing power. I, I, I think it's, it, we're basically probably looking at a lost decade uh, in inflation-adjusted S&P 500, for example. Now, I do think that there's there's value sectors that could do well. There's certain emerging market sectors that could do well. Um, but I think that the large mega cap, you know, American uh, stock market is, is probably not very well positioned for a five to 10 year period, especially when you price it either in CPI or gold or you know whatever you want to do for your your pricing that that's somewhat um, kind of a harder uh, measure. Right, and that's your macro thesis. But I know from Lynn Alden Investment Strategy that you do like individual stocks in the mega cap growth sector. So you, there's always it's a matter of underweighting. It's not taking it to zero. So uh, you know you don't say oh because I think this might underperform I'm going to short or something. And I, I think you know people watching that 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 um, should should do that too. Lynn, for, for final question, we've talked a lot about the investment universe, uh, about the banking system. I want to say, tell us about the narrow bank. What is the narrow bank and, and why is it significant? Well, the narrow bank was proposed years ago. To, uh, you know, it's a, I believe it's a bank in Connecticut. Um, but they, they essentially wanted a business model of taking deposit cash and, and putting it in the Fed. Um, and there's there's been a number of other banks that that try to do something similar. They're generally not allowed to do that. Um, and essentially, you know, if allowed to exist, it'd be among the safest banks you can have because it's essentially a full reserve bank where it's it's just you know kind of tied it right into the central bank. And you know that bank for depositors might be challenging in a low interest rate environment because you know uh, they can't earn a yield. Uh, the bank can't earn a yield, and so they have to, you know, charge fees or you know some some sort of way to stay in business for their customers. So it's essentially a, a bank for low risk um, depositors that that don't want to take on any sort of default risk. On the other hand, if you have a higher rate environment where the central bank is actually paying out interest on reserves, then a type of bank like that can operate uh, profitably and even pass on some interest rate. Uh, to depositors just lower than what they're getting from their central bank uh, to cover their overhead. Um, and so in, in general, there's, you know, it's, it's funny, basically, banks are basically leveraged bond funds with payment services attached, and we treat it as totally normal to use this, you know, it's like, where should grandma hold her her money in the in the highly leveraged bond fund? <laughs> like that's that's kind of how we treat it. Um, and and there's always been some people that want to do full reserve banking. Um, and they've, they've just generally not been allowed to operate because I think one of the risks there from kind of a policymaker perspective is if there's banks where all they do is give you direct access to the essentially the central bank balance sheet, then why wouldn't a very large percentage of depositors want to go there, especially if, if it's a positive rate environment, they don't have to pay like a fee in order to have that, that you know, exposure. And so you risk kind of sucking liquidity out from other banks um, into that. Uh, uh, vehicle. And so I, I think in some ways it shows how fragile the system is that they don't really want some of these safer banks to exist. That's really interesting. And on an individual basis, it's, it sounds bad. Oh, you're preventing people from being able to get 100% safe money, but it's expanded out to the society. If you know you deposit money in Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo lends that money not that money, but you know, money out to me to a mortgage to, to buy a house. 
uh, let's say, nope, you, now sounds like you're, you like the narrow bank. You take money out of Wells Fargo, go to the narrow bank. The narrow bank is not giving me a loan. It's not giving any loans. Is that bad for the economy? Does our current economic system with its uh, flaws and, and advantages require uh, uh, bank lending? And, and would a world in which the, the, there's only one bank, the narrow bank, or, or many other narrow banks, would that be a completely different society? Would it be better or worse? Uh, so yeah, I think there's two different answers depending on which direction we go. And I think it's, it, it's not, it doesn't really work with the current system, which is really leverage focused. Um, you basically have a constantly, you know, depreciating currency unit and constantly increasing amount of credit in the system. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really vibe well with, with that approach. Uh, whereas if I zoom out, um, I, I do think we could have a healthier economic and financial environment if we weren't so leverage based, if not everything was based around fractional reserve banking. Um, so I, I obviously, you know, I, I would generally incline towards that type of model. Um, but in, in a, as a realist, um, I, I think, you know, in this period of time, it's just not something that's generally allowed, uh, but it's something I would like to see in the future. And, you know, that's kind of what you see. I mean, obviously, there's been people in the gold space advocating for that type of thing. Uh, more recently, in the, in the Bitcoin space, uh, you have people that are anti-fractional reserve banking. They're more like, you know, just hold, hold your own money. And I, I think that, that that's an interesting direction to look in and something that I, you know, I don't really buy into the economic view that, that currency has to depreciate and that we have to use constantly increasing leverage. Uh, I think that's, a, that's an artifact of this kind of past century and a half. Um, and I'm not really sure that the next century and a half is going to look like that. But that's obviously, that's getting cosmic. That's like zooming yeah. out. Whereas in this kind of near term, uh, I just don't, I don't think a full reserve uh, direct line to the central bank is something that they, they would probably be interested in allowing because it, it does disrupt the Wells Fargo's of the world. Uh, that's very, very interesting. Uh, Lynn, my, my final question for you is a cosmic one, which is in a world without fractional reserve banking, who prints money? Well, nobody. I mean, basically, <laughs> if, if, if you have, um, you know, if you have a bunch of either free banks or, or full reserve banks, you probably have some sort of underlying hard unit that requires energy to produce. You know, back in the day, it used to be gold, for example. Nobody could print gold. Miners could could expend energy to get more gold, um, and that that's how new money is created. I mean, you still have um, credit in those systems, right? So, I mean, there's there's still short-term funding needs, liquidity needs, um, and there's still you know you can still kind of print claims on money, uh, and so that that comes down to in, individual uh, lenders as well as the government can can borrow money. So you still have some degree of money printing when you count all those IOUs. But in that type of world, nobody can can change the size of the monetary base. That that's what's somewhat different. Or at least they can't freely change the the size of the monetary base. Mm, there you go, uh, Lynn. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, getting you back on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much for coming on. People can follow you on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact, and your your writings uh, at Lynn Alden Investment Strategy are at lynnalden.com. Uh, thanks again, and thank you everyone for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.